0: Hello and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder our expectations have become greater, and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate, and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers, and shakers trailblazers, and game-changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines, and knowing when to quit. Choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimize your success.
1: Fashion rental has exploded in the last year, which might surprise you, given that no one has had anywhere to go. Episode 3 gives you the chance to hear more about the startup journey of Europe's fastest-growing fashion rental platform, Her. Co-founder Victoria Prue chatted
0: to me about the challenges in the last year, using the one month when the UK wasn't in lockdown to sneak in a huge partnership with high street giant Selfridges, why sustainability is a prerequisite of a modern brand, and how the future of fashion is feeding the circular economy. Victoria shared with me that her wasn't her first business idea, how she'd spent a lot
1: of time and energy on two or three other serious ideas before backing her as the one. We discussed the evolving market, the responsibility of brands to inform and educate their consumers, how consumerism is evolving, and the opportunity to impact an entire generation for whom ownership is not primary goal. It would be hard to miss her in the news, especially as they've dressed celebrities including Ellie Goulding, Ella Eyre, Stacey Dooley, and Claudia Schiffer.
0: If you've been a little light on your
1: news consumption, you can use the next hour to wise up on one of the most exciting brands to watch in 2021. So I wanted to talk to you before we get on to, obviously, Her, um, the main event. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about what you were doing before you started the business and how that led to the creation of what is now Her.
2: So I, my first kind of, I guess, experience of entrepreneurship was back when I was doing an undergrad and um, I did a joint honours degree and one of my modules was entrepreneurship and I got to basically start a business with two, two other guys and it ended up doing quite well. And after a year, I was like, okay, right, I'm going to have to go and get a proper job. But you know, my heart is always going to be in running something because I loved it so much. So I then went down a pretty traditional career route. I did a master's degree in real estate and then trained in commercial real estate for a number of years and then qualified and handed my notice in the next day to co-found what is now her because I was so set on going back to starting a business. And I was fortunate and young enough that, 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 you know, I could, you know, live at home, have no risk really attached and then save up a bit of money to to give an idea a punt. And that's exactly what I did.
1: So in that sense, were you then always aware that you had entrepreneurial spirit? You just hadn't at that time found the business that you were going to channel that into?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I actually had a number of business ideas. I wasn't completely set on her. I had I had an, probably two or three really serious ideas that I'd done you know research on, and I was convinced all three of them were going to work. But knew I could only really do one. So I spent a couple of weeks, probably best part of, of a month, month and a half, looking at all three opportunities that I kind of come up with that were really wacky. And before you ask me, I'm not going to tell you the other two because I still really think they're the next billion dollar businesses. Um, but, um, but but I looked. I looked at lots of different things and and, and spoke to lots of people in VC and fundraising about which one was going to have legs. Um, And the more research I did, the more convinced I was that her was going to be the next big thing.
1: Okay, so there was a real commitment to going and talking to people and figuring out a bit of a stress test of like, what is the appetite for this actual proposition?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I I think when you read about... founding a startup you read a lot about you know doing your customer research and getting a, a, a type form together with 200 people to prove that there's a market I feel like I slightly skipped those steps where I was so convinced that there was a market for this and I couldn't I just couldn't understand why it didn't already exist I was like this is crazy that this what is a very actually simple idea just hadn't been executed well in the UK or in the us on the peer-to-peer rental side so um, I, I think very much I am an embodiment of the her customer I'm a millennial I rent my house, I rent my car. And I was like, if I want to rent my wardrobe and I'm buying things, wearing them a couple of times, and then, you know, there in the back of my wardrobe, there are going to be other women like this out there. And then the more research I did, the more convinced I was. And, and, you know, on a consumer level, I was convinced. And then obviously on a macro level, sustainability three and a half years ago was a conversation no one was really in. And it certainly wasn't a mass market conversation. And look how far we've come in a very short space of time where the fast fashion and the impacts of fashion on our environment are now on the front page of every newspaper and people are actually looking to do to, to do things differently.
1: Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's been such an explosion of, um, I guess, conscious consumers, brands looking to meet that demand and then uh, bigger organisations responding to that by things like, you know, B Corp and status that have, statuses that have um, recognised significant and substantial um progress in the space what why has that explosion happened in the last 3 or so years
2: I think there are two drivers. Number one driver is um, the environmental impact of fast fashion has really started going to the forefront. Um, and so, you know, there is a massive responsibility on companies to do things better, to look at circular business models, etc. But I think the larger driver is, is the fact that there is a whole generation of people that want to consume things differently. Gen Zs and millennials, we know 75 plus percent of Gen Zs and millennials are spending their money with brands that they feel like, like their values align to. Depop is a great example. They've on record numbers over the last year, um, and I think just goes to show that, that the whole consumer mindset is shifting. What the consumer and what, especially the post post COVID consumer wants, is very different. And I think you couple those kind of trends with the fact that I'm sure you're the same, and the people listening to this are the same. We sat at home for a year, looking at all the stuff that we have bought, thinking why Why do we own all the stuff? It, is this stuff really making us happy? I'm sure everyone listening to this probably has an item in their wardrobe still with the labels on. Why is that? Why Why do we have to own clothes why do we have to own you know our sofa why do we have to own all these things like and it actually is that making us happy and i've done a lot of work over the last year around kind of linking owning less to having better mental health And i think it's a really interesting argument and area about like you know the the idea of minimalism actually being better for us and it's super interesting
1: yeah i mean i'd love to come back to that because i want to talk to you about social media and i want to talk a little bit about some of the trends of anti-consumptionism and enoughism and i guess that mental health piece does does fall into that um Mm -hmm. i certainly have spent time at home in the last year looking at how grotesque it is to have so much stuff and i think i obviously um went through the platform and get a get a check every now and again from people uh you know wearing myself which is fabulous um but (laughs) also it does as you say there's a it's a a real mirror up to people that's like that you can't now not see this we can't unsee Mm -hmm. it so i think it's you know as you say a business really started out of necessity out of observation that you're like how if this is me i'm probably representative of of other people in the same in the same mindset How did you move that from the winning idea amongst the initial trio through to making it an actual reality? What were the sort of practical steps for that process to get the business up and running?
2: so kind of as i touched upon rather than spending six months or you know a couple of weeks building a business plan i basically thought it was a better use of mine and my co-founder's time to actually just start building so i think my number one top tip is just get going um in terms of kind of taking an idea to a reality i personally feel and, and having gone through fundraisers which i'm sure will come on to talk about actually uh, a business deck is incredibly difficult to sell a functioning product even if it doesn't look glossy and glamorous and 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 the, the, the earlier version versions of her still slightly horrify me in terms of kind of what I built and what that looks like. But we had a product that people were using. Um, it, it was not glamorous at all. And still to this day, there are huge changes that need to be made to make it you know, the, the leading product. And, and we're working on that. But but um, I, I think the hardest thing is actually just getting started. You can sit. And when I speak to other female CEOs in particular, I think we have this crippling need for perfection and everything to be perfect. And, and actually my top advice is actually getting going. The, the sooner you can iterate start getting some feedback and we got some really harsh feedback in the early days but I still look back on those early early adopters or people that hated the idea or people that thought it was never going to work. Um, and, and we've been able to go back in with with a what is, I hope, a, a more exciting functioning product that now does work and is scaling really well and growing really fast. So um, I think the hardest part is actually getting going. And, and, and for us, that was building a, a platform from line one of code ourselves, ourselves owning the IP and, and actually just starting to build what was quite a complex tech platform.
1: Yeah, I guess it's hard, isn't it? Because sometimes people get stuck with these really long term, like world visions of everything or world views. Mm-hmm. And actually, it sounds like a very rudimentary piece of advice. But I think it is a big stumbling block for a lot of people that you can try and iterate your product so much that you're essentially trying to create this sort of polished, finished version. And you'll mm-hmm. never get it out the door if you're trying to do that. But you've got to get it. You've got to get it going to be able to actually get that feedback and, and start running a business
2: for sure. I think you also look when you're in startup, say you're in a, you're starting a jewellery business, you, you, you're naturally going to p- compare yourself with billion dollar jewellery businesses or companies that have a team of 500 people doing creative. And I remember those early days of being like, why does my website not look like Airbnb? Why does my website not look like Net-A-Porter? And it's because mm-hmm. we were a two man band that we're funding this kind of idea ourselves. And, you know, still we're not there. Um, and I think you're completely right, actually, understanding that y- y- it's never going to be fully functioning. It's not not going to be your five-year goal, but getting going is going to save you time down the line.
1: Yeah, I agree with you about the early stages. I still have nightmares about someone like bumping into someone who has an, a, like a first pitch deck of mine from like 2013 and thinking that I'm going to have to just like move abroad and never speak to anyone again because it'd be so embarrassing but um <laughs> but yeah as I say you've got you got to you got to start somewhere did you find I think it's interesting what you just said about um particularly the jewelry and I'm interested in you very much saw an opportunity within an industry that clearly needed change. People use the word disruption a lot and everyone who works in interesting businesses hates it. Um, But, you know, it's a disruptor in the industry. And um, is that very different to going into an existing existing industry like jewellery and going, I think I've got an interesting jewellery business or I think I've got an angle. Is it very different to go, ah, hang on, there's a very short window in which you know other people are probably going to realize that rental could be a thing this is a generation of consumers who don't want to own but also can't because everything's so fucking expensive and you know there's no way people are going to be able to buy buy real estate and all those other things is it a different process to be like i've got to get ahead because other people are going to get onto this as opposed to going into an industry that already exists where you're trying to then disrupt it
2: yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I, I think it, it's interesting because we, we went into a market pretty blind and I fit, felt under huge pressure uh, to, to, to be the first to market. We launched as the UK's first peer-to-peer wardrobe rental platform. And I think that stood us in great stead in terms of being the kind of early adopters of what is now a pretty advanced or advancing rental market. And I also think when you're first to market, that comes with kind of two two challenges. Number one is that is the market really there? You know, we're still trying to change behaviors every day and get people to rent an item for the first time, if you're selling into a pre-existing market, um, that sells a bit easier, right? Someone's probably bought a necklace before and actually they're buying your necklace because you've got a cooler, whatever it may be. And um, the second part of it, and the, probably the biggest advantage I think I had was the fact that my background is not fashion. And what I was really passionate about was the kind of tech angle and how we could scale this and actually how we can change behaviors at scale. That That's what drives me. And, I think when we started getting into that mindset, it was actually quite looking back a, a really nice thing to have to be quite ignorant about how the fashion industry works I didn't know much about how the seasons works the, the seasons work um, I didn't know much about how the fast fashion industry works in terms of the real kind of nitty-gritty high-level fashion um, and I think it still us in good stead because it meant that we questioned every decision and when someone said no that's not how the industry works my co-founder and I sat there and said well well why not Look, we can make it work that way and we think it should work that way and you know why do people need to rent spring summer you know, whatever season, when actually we've got a really beautiful Rixo London dress or Jacquemus bag from a couple of seasons ago that we think our customers going to like. So I think going into a, a market naive has its benefits, um, but it's much easier to scale in a market obviously that, that pre-exists for sure.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you? Um, I guess it's worth also saying it'd be a good time to talk a little bit more specifically about. The, the vertical of her so I'm sure everyone listening will will know who you are and, and, and the business you're obviously um the most exciting brand in this space first to market growing really quickly definitely the market leader but for the purposes of explanation there's, there's a lot of other businesses that are looking at rental in all different in all different forms you guys specifically appear peer-to-peer can you explain a bit more about how that functionality works um from a journey perspective. And also, you know, there are benefits, obviously, for people monetizing their wardrobes, as well as people wanting to rent product. And can you just explain a bit more about the peer-to-peer element of the business?
2: Yeah, of course. So um, when you think about fashion rental, most people listening to this probably think about Rent the Runway or have heard of Rent the Runway. Um, Rent the Runway, a billion dollar business in the States doing rental for 10 years and proving that rental is going to be the next big thing. Um, They're a subscription-based business where they buy stock and then rent it to the consumer. Um, Our view was, okay, Rent the Runway is is an an incredible business, but we want to be a tech first platform that is a bit more inventory light and not have um, lots of stock. So so, so the peer-to-peer idea is actually how can Emily you know, invest in a self-portrait dress and then wear it, feel fabulous once, and then actually understand that there's mon- monetary value and she can run that out item out to the her community. So we have users all across the UK who are investing in quality over just buying the fast fashion knockoffs, knowing that their wardrobes actually are monetary, you know, have monetary value. And some of our users, you know, we had a pair of sleeper pajamas that have rented four times and someone's made 400 pounds or, or, or around 400 pounds in the last month. We, I want her to be empowering women to actually see their wardrobes as an investment and understand that um, they can rent and lend. So to your point, people can make money from our platform and rent out their own wardrobes, or actually they can rent amazing fashion for ten percent or twenty percent of the RRP, knowing that statistically we wear items a couple of times and then they get stuck, you know, in our wardrobes or worse, sent to landfill. So that that kind of value has always been in our tech. That's what really differentiates us, and, and we want to connect people all across the UK and change behaviours at scale with having, without having those those upfront costs of having to, to buy stock and commit to orders.
1: And presumably, that also provides an elevated community amongst a, tech, a faceless tech platform in the instance of Rent the Runway, because the peer-to-peer lending allows people to sort of talk about what they're renting the products for. So, you're probably helping people on first dates and job interviews and all sorts of, you know, weddings and unique experiences that do you do you hear those stories? Do you get to, to see sort of where the, where the clothes have traveled?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's part of the reason why I love her so much. It's it's seeing the conversations between our users, seeing people rent from Claudia, say once, and then realizing Claudia has a great wardrobe and renting from her again. That's why we exist. It's putting, you know, the coolest wardrobes in Britain and, and sharing them with with women that love fashion but want to do things differently. And um, when I think back to like some of my favorite stories in our in our pop up in Selfridges, um, we did an amazing rental for not only the bride, but a mother of the bride and, and a mother of the bride Really interesting because perhaps they see us as a kind of millennial tech-first jazzy startup, but actually, you know, I want mothers of the brides to be able to go into Selfridges and rent a really cool Rickstow dress or an LK Bennett dress or whatever she wants, and I want to service that customer. And it was the first time in store in real life I had seen a woman, you know, kind of my mum's age, just loving our business, in, like in person. And um, so I love that. We've also had great stories of, of women coming into to, to Selfridges after work putting on on a really glamorous sequin dress and running out in the sequin dress to her date. Um, and then she sent us an Instagram saying that it went really well. So absolutely, like, that was, that's really what gets me out of bed is the fact that like, I genuinely believe that, that we're changing the way people are viewing fashion. And I think people will always own clothes and there is definitely a space for ownership in a, in a wardrobe. And I just hope that, that over time and as we come out of lockdown, people are going to rent their June 21st of outfits rather than buy them for a one-off occasion.
1: Yeah, I guess these sort of aggressive um, headlines in the media about the demise of the high street is sort of unavoidable when you consider these quite dusty, antiquated stores that, um, you know, huge stores carrying so much stock. It just seems it's very difficult to to, to argue with the fact that this has got to be the future of the way that people are going to um, to. to value ownership. And that, that, as you say, will probably be a combined approach um, in terms of owning some things and renting some things. But it's um, an opportunity that is unavoidable in terms of the way that that space is going. With that said, you um, partnered with Selfridges last year. I, I know that you had some quite lucky timeframes with um, your launches. You had about three weeks where the world wasn't locked down and decided to, to launch into another store and take advantage of that last year. But Selfridges is obviously a globally recognised, huge high street business. And, um, That's quite a big deal, right, that you are now a partner for them for rental. Can you tell me a bit more about that partnership and what it means in terms of um, a store like that acknowledging and accepting that this is the future of the way that people are going to shop?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, today I still have to pinch myself that that we have a big partnership with Selfridges for, for us. Um, Selfridges backing the idea of of a rent, rental put us, like you said, a global brand. Put a brand like her, which was a kind of two and a half year old startup at the time, on a global scale. And I will be forever thankful to their team for, for that opportunity. And, and for me, they were the perfect match. They are the most forward thinking department store. They have championed amazing brands over the the last couple of years. They've done a deep pop-up, Vestiaire Collective pop-up. They have resale and um, repair as part of their business, and they're on a big drive to just do things differently. Um, so it, it's been obviously hugely valuable. And I think it's been a bit of a legitimizer for rental as a concept in the UK. Um, when you have the backing of a powerhouse like Selfridges, it's basically a brand saying, look, guys, this is the way this is going. Let's be part of it. You know, rental's not scary. It's not going to cannibalize sales. It's going to open up an entire different market. And that's exactly what, what we've done and what we're continuing to prove. So for me, the biggest challenge and something that we're working on at the moment is, okay, how can we take her from a pilot and from rental from a pilot into a longer term, you know, business profitable, you know, part of uh, any business's long-term drivers. Um, and that's exactly what we're doing. So Selfridges have piloted us in store and then have since rolled out their, their in-house rental collection through us through the end of last year, which I think goes to show that you you can pilot an, pilot an idea with, with an amazing startup that's doing some something a bit different or something cool or interesting or innovative without that kind of capex commitment and then actually if it works and we were able luckily to prove in a short time period that it was working um off the back of that we're now a part of our long-term business which, which is hugely exciting for a business like us Do you think
1: that's a limiting factor for lots of people who've started companies is they sort of think, you know, there's no way that selfridges would ever work with us. Let's go small first. And you sort of went balls to the walls. Let's start at the top. Let's let's have a go. Do you think that, you know, it's it's, I guess for people listening who have just started a business or have an entrepreneurial flair and want to, did you feel pressure and barrier to that barriers to that and do you think that that's common for a lot of businesses to not kind of sh- shoot for the stars as it were?
2: Yeah, well, I think when you, you probably look at our business, you think that we went straight straight to a partnership with Selfridges, but we didn't. We ran a what, looking back, was a pretty scrappy, uh, st- our own pop-up where I took an old an old uh, bank that had been t- converted into a pop-up space and we ran our own pop-up. Um, and we basically ran our office out of the basement of it for a year, uh, uh, for, for a month, uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and it was off the back of that that Selfridges saw what was going on. So I think it's definitely not a step one um, that Selfridges saying, Let's, let's you know give this a go and kind of go blind into it. It was a proven concept by then. And I think also the likes of Selfridges, and I've seen this real hand, have started backing some really early stage or interesting businesses, female owned in, uh, businesses. There's a great bag brand called It's Roop. I'm sure you've seen their kind of statement bags. Um, that, that was a one or a two man band that Selfridges then put on the center stage in store. They looked incredible in store. And I see them backing really interesting, much smaller startups. Or, or businesses that were about the same size as us a couple of years ago. So I think you know it, it is a step two, but but why not shoot for the moon? Um, and if you've got a business that you think is worth it, what why not pitch it in?
1: So we talk a lot and we hear a lot about this idea of the circular economy. Can you explain to me what the circular economy is and um, the connection between how her is directly impacting that?
2: Sure. So there are two kind of models of fashion. One is the linear model and one is the circular model. So explain really simply, Uh, the linear model goes from a line where you buy an item, wear it, and then it goes to landfill or you buy an item, you wear it and it gets stuck in your wardrobe and never used again. The circular economy I envisage as a circle. And the idea is once you buy that item, you wear it, rather than that going to landfill, which is how it happens, you're keeping that item going round in a circular motion for as long as possible. And um, so, when you're thinking about the circular economy, it's basically just keeping the clothes we already own in existence for longer. Rentals part of that, resales part of that, upcycling, repair—anything that it's kind of extending the lifespan of our clothes is kind of keeping clothes in existence for longer, which is the circular economy in itself. So we're kind of, I guess, at the kind of stage two where most people have bought the clothes, and actually, our job is kind of that post-purchase: how can we keep these amazing clothes being used, being rented by Emily, being rented by the Victoria for as long as physically possible, and then thinking about resale after after a number of rentals. So um, there's obviously a big drive towards circular, and and we know the um, fashion's waste problems and and the fact that the fast fashion model often ends in landfill. So I guess we're kind of sitting the other side of that and making sure that these clothes that are beautiful and and well made and 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 stunning are actually being used and being loved. Yeah.
1: One of the criticisms of the fashion industry generally, has been about lack of diversity and inclusivity. And that specifically speaks to more recently in the media, um, the idea of size. And that obviously is um, an issue for a number of reasons. There are responsibilities throughout the whole chain, including manufacturers actually creating and making the garments um, that represent the end consumer but also for everyone within within the uh, chain to to step up and take some accountability. Rental globally has been um, lacking in representation in terms of particularly size diversity. Is that something that has been on your agenda? And is it something that you feel passionately about and are doing anything about in terms of um, trying to Make it more accessible for people who perhaps don't fit a size eight fabulous gown, but still want to be able to show up in the same way as the people that do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and and all of your um, remarks are completely correct. H- how can we have a, a, a movement towards sustainability? Sustainability and inclusivity go hand in hand. And anything that we need to be doing is needs to solve those two problems. So um, I, I feel like we've always had our eye on making sure that the products we're offering are inclusive and that they are not just size eight dresses. But because we sit after the clothes have been made and bought, you know, we get that knock on effect from the brands that are only creating up to a size. 16 and that is their inclusivity offering and frankly that's not good enough in 2020 the average size of a UK woman is a size 16 so if you're only manufacturing up to a size 16 what happens to the amazing women that are not a size 16 and and a curvy or plus size that we're not facilitating so at the beginning well middle of middle of last year when we were in the middle of lockdown we looked at kind of our size offering and there wasn't enough at the kind of the more curvy plus size end so so we have a two-prong attack um, on this to get this right. Um, We recently launched, and it was covered by um, the amazing journalists at Vogue Business, a a, a campaign called Rent All, which is obviously a play on the word rental. And it's the idea that we need two solutions to this. One is us partnering with amazing brands. And in the last six to nine months, we now have 10 brands that are catering for the plus-size market. We have a brand called Selkie, which do these incredible pink puff dresses. Um, we have a brand um, that's come in from New York Called Ray W R A Y that has that stunning like SS twenty one checkerboard print that everyone's obsessed with right now, and um, we have Loud Bodies which is a female owned brand that curates and basically makes to order these beautiful dresses. So we've been active in the brand space to make sure that we can do our part. And then the kind of second part of this conversation is actually calling on our her community to start listing more items peer to peer that are a size sixteen and above, and and we're going through this big campaign at the moment to get amazing influencers, curvy celebrities, or just people that, that want to be part of this conversation to share their wardrobes on her. And we're financially incentivizing them to do so. So if they list three items over above a size 16, they receive a £15 credit note. Um, So I think we're making great progress. We've got targets. We want to add another 750 items by uh, mid this year. um, And that's the goal that we're working towards. And for me, I want any item on her, whether it's a size eight or a size 20 to be elevated, aspirational and something that I would personally wear. I don't want a watered down size 16 version that's meant for a size 10. I want beautiful clothes that anyone and everyone can wear.
1: Yeah, because you're right. You sort of, you know, there are some people who could, um, or some businesses that could list larger sizes and they just sort of get the, the rubbish products to facilitate or box tick um, that sort of inclusivity piece. And what you're saying is obviously that y- you want people to be able to show up in a way that um, it doesn't ever feel like it's, repressive or like back of the queue because that's just not the uh emotional feeling you want to evoke by allowing people to have access to to beautiful clothes.
2: Yeah absolutely and if you haven't seen the Ray edit on her it's unbelievable. And for me that's the first example of a brand that's creating clothes excess to 5XL that's the same style. It's as exciting, it's super fashion forward, it's created you know created beautifully it's well made it's it's ethically made it's the perfect tick box brand I think and then they need to be more brands like silky ray and loud bodies in the world for sure
1: they must be at the stage you were at, at the beginning of her way you're like how does this not exist this is ridiculous <laughs> um, it's absurd. um so i follow you on instagram um you post uh I, I guess quite a lot about the realities of running your business so uh late nights in the office, sort of busy meetings, busy days, clothes all around you trying to organize stuff. You're very hands-on in your business. You mentioned earlier that you um, work on the shop floor in Selfridges, presumably partly to actually meet and interact with customers, but also to be a part of your business and be visible. How important is it for you to be open and honest within reason about the challenges of running a business?
2: I, I think it takes time is my honest answer I think for the first probably couple of months or, or probably a couple of you know a year or year and a half um I probably looked at lots of other female entrepreneurs that were like just looked like they were getting everything right all the time and I was like looking at these women who always look so glamorous thinking my god how are they doing it and then I think there was a big shift probably just before lockdown or in the last year I'd say where actually I think people just want a bit more real life and and, and I I don't want people to be put off kind of like I was in the early days of her where I was like, how, you know, People talk about success. People, we all know the IPO success story and the building a billion dollar business. But how do you actually get there? And no one really talks about the like years and the and the grunt work that goes into getting there. And I I, yeah, I guess my hope is that, that someone listening to this or someone that follows me on Instagram and, and I get amazing, you know, people commenting or, or or sending me DMs being like, I'm just at the start and like I'm having late night too and I'm having a shit day. And like I hope that that we can open up a conversation more generally around actually, this is a conversation. It's not glamorous and it's not hard. And like, let's not glamorize this because right now it's just not, you know, the last year for most businesses has been a kind of ride or die pivot. Are we going to get through this? And it's come as a massive emotional toll for most founders that I know. And I think the more openness and honest we can be about that journey, we need to be sharing the highs and lows. Otherwise, why would people start businesses? Right,
1: precisely. And I think that's often um, a real restriction in terms of people entering into it. And I I meet a lot of people who sort of want to start businesses, but either don't know where to start or they're slightly unrealistic about what it actually entails. And I agree with you. I think there's a lot on social media about looking a certain way. And obviously it's a balancing act, right? You've got investors, you've got a team, you can't look like a piece of shit and be miserable. And, you know, you've got it, there's, there's a competency piece. That's the reality of running a business. If you're asking for people's money and you're employing people and you're trying to get people on the journey with you, you've got to show up in a way that's professional. But I think that what, what I've seen is that there's, so much more acceptance about the idea of professionalism in the context of being a real human being. And mm. I do think that particularly women in business can um, participate in professional and personal lives and balance that well. I think it is challenging. I don't think it's impossible, but I think that w- why would anyone want it to be more complex and, and harder? And, and I do, I mean, like sometimes I think I could probably look 30% better it, but I'm just busy and I would and I'm just like for me putting on mascara that day isn't necessarily additive and I do agree with you there's a real there's a real pressure do you do you have a, uh, a good relationship with social media with Instagram I mean either and professionally and personally but do you find it a sort of fabulous marketing tool or do you feel sometimes like you've got to be performative and do a and a when all you want to do is sort of hide
2: and, um, and put on a tracksuit <laughs> it's interesting. You
1: so, wear a, tra- ins- a tracksuit. I don't even know. I do, do you I do. Occ- occasionally, do. Occ-
2: occasionally <laughs> I take off my dresses. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, Instagram is a big tool for us over on the Her channel. Um, a, a massive part of our kind of new customer acquisition comes straight from Instagram. We've always been a kind of Instagram first brand. Um, I hope we really get the balance right between user-generated content and real life content versus just glossy fashion content. Um, I certainly push the message of kind of usability and accessibility and I want her to feel aspirational but also accessible and for me, I really hope that we get that balance right. Um, I don't feel personal pressure to post. Um, I think it's, like you say, a bit of a balancing act. Um, I find social media a fascinating tool and and I actually am way more interested in TikTok than I am on Instagram. Um, So I post from time to time when I think I've got something interesting to share but, but I don't hand on heart put too much thought into it because like you say, there are only so many hours in the day um, for me, I'm much more interested in, in in TikTok and this like new generation of what's going on. I spend hours of my life on that. I feel like that was the addiction that I had when Instagram first came out, how many years ago, pre-her, all the rest of it. And, um, you know, we've seen and I think we're going to see, you know, this whole new generation of Gen, gen Z exist on TikTok because brands don't really exist on TikTok. And it's the level of authenticity that Instagram just doesn't have. And for me, I find that fascinating about how you can transport a brand or a person into a TikTok. Environment. We've been testing it over at her um, uh, quite a while now. And I think JW Anderson have done an amazing job as a kind of fashion brand of, okay, they've had this like sellout cardigan through a massive TikTok viral campaign. I think personally that's more interesting. And I think we've always been as a kind of young female owned brand, um, quite, um, I think, authentic and quite truthful. We're not kind of a glossy fashion brand. We are a peer to peer marketplace. And I think whatever I can do to push that market, you know push that kind of idea of real life um I, I want to do that because i want more people starting businesses um and, and i want social media to be a place where actually you follow people that you really admire not just glossy influencers that whose lives you will never have i i hope that people will follow me or other you know, or you or inspiring kind of uh female ceos or male ceos because they're doing interesting things rather than the fact that they're posting a photo of their coffee so
1: yeah, no, it's a good point. Do you it's interesting that you mentioned TikTok and your fascination with it because I've spoken to quite a few people. No one's talked about it as a as a platform. I guess um it's really interesting when and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, as a business owner there's such a bombardment of opportunity between not just social media platforms, but obviously going after press, working with celebrities, uh, looking at all the different sort of marketing tools and platforms. And I think, you know, marketing is obviously really integral to a business that is brand first as you are. How do you prioritize that? How do you make a hierarchy? Are you, as you mentioned, that sort of Instagram works for you at the moment, but you're looking at TikTok. Is it a case of really doing the work at looking at where the impact would be on the business slowly or is it that Instagram was just the most accessible and easiest and TikTok's still a bit of a wild west or um, how do you manage the prioritization of that especially at the beginning when you're a lean team and you're sort of wearing all different hats?
2: Yeah, I, I have strong views on this. I, I think it's so, I mean, how do you start? How do you cover off Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, uh, Pinterest, YouTube? There are so many. I, and I personally think it's better if you're a small brand or you're a one-man band starting out, just do one and do it well and don't worry about the rest of it. You, you, rather than doing them all averagely, focus your energy on one that's going to convert for you. Instagram was that for us and, and my we have an incre- incredible social media team here at her. And I think they're just super reactive. It's just test and learn. It's not like a, it needs to be perfect first time. Sometimes we post photos that, that don't perform very well. And sometimes we fo- post photos that go viral. That is all part of it. And in terms of a kind of influencer space, it's really interesting. Obviously, celebrity and influencers are a huge part of what we do. Um, you know, Holly Willoughby, every time she rents a dress from her on this morning, crashes our website. And uh, the whole the whole world and, and our, her HQ team go into kind of this excitement and panic and stress of just like rentals going through the roof and like more volume and more traffic than we ever, could have dreamed of and, and it's a really important part of our strategy but I think like you say how, how do you focus on all of them um, uh, we started super small and every win was a win in the early days we're now a bit more kind of strategy focused and I think influencer and Instagram is great but I feel really passionately that it's going to be these key opinion leaders that people are going to trust going forwards. We, you know better than anyone this conversation around influence and, and where does real influence come from and for me I, I see in five years time we're going to be trusting the people that are news presenters, but also happen to love fashion and rent from her. You know, Anita Rani is a great example, um, You know, or an Olympic athlete. We have an amazing girl, woman called uh, Morgan Lake, who is an Olympic athlete that rents cool House of Sunny, dresses and tops through her. And I feel that's the way that the market's going. And I want to be part of that conversation where amazing women who happen to be influencers, happen to be celebrities, or they are key opinion leaders, whether that is in politics or business, they're CEO's of leading, you know, Fortune 500 companies or FTSE 100 companies. That's where I see the market going, and whatever we've got to do to capitalise on that real-life woman who is renting from her, and also it happens to be massively successful or massively cool or a leader in their field. Um, that's how I want my brand to be positioned.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a great point about broadening the idea of influence because you obviously have you know, an amazing list of fabulous celebrities, including you mentioned Holly Willoughby, but you've also got Ellie Goulding, Claudia Schiffer, Ella Eyre. you know, the list is is endless. Um, and that does something very specific for a brand, right? Like that's easy visibility. They've got lots of followers. You can pitch that out to magazines. The picture's that lovely, you know, there's a sort of tried and tested method with attaching your, your brand and your product to to celebrities and what's so brilliant about what you're doing as a growing business is becoming so desirable that they want in on the action. And that's a great place to be. But as you say, I think think part of the reason that there's been this elevated obsession and interest and intrigue with particularly female business owners is because there's been a broadening of the idea of what influence actually means. And we want to rent clothes from people who look like us and sound like us and have similar aspirations to us and the idea of celebrity is fundamentally incredibly detached from our day-to-day do you what what are your thoughts on why entrepreneurialism specifically I guess female women in in, in business why has that become so much more interesting and fascinating because there's been an un undoubtable growth in the number of women who've started businesses who we see in the media all the time there's more books about business than we've ever seen you know podcasts etc why has that happened is it is it reduction of barriers is it that there's it's now never been easier to start a business is it the women think they can do it or like what what are your thoughts on sort of why that trend has has suddenly exploded
2: I think it's because for the first time we've seen women at the top and we've seen our, you know, our millennial role models or 30 or 40 or 50 year old women getting to the top. I mean, we've all seen the photos of Whitney IPOing Bumble, you know, holding her her toddler. And I, I think it's hugely inspirational. And I see it as a really exciting, you know, change in, in, in tact. I, I saw some research from the Albright Club a couple of weeks ago that said that they did a survey where one in four women plan to launch their own business post-lockdown. And I think you've had this kind of murmur of women running cool companies and that being quite not an elitist conversation, but there certainly weren't a lot of women running companies to actually, okay, I've worked from home for a whole year. What does my life now look like? What what do I care about? Can I control my life a bit more? Or can I get a side hustle off the ground because I'm not commuting two hours or two and a half hours a day? So um, I I think you're right. I think the barriers have been removed, but also the stigma has been removed because we've seen women for the first time IPO in companies. Um, And for me, that's a hugely exciting change in terms of, you know, know, aspiration. It's such an interesting comment that you made about like, I want to see people like me renting from her. I want to see people like me running teams of a hundred people or raising a series B round um, and understanding how they're doing it, because that's what I desperately want for myself or my business. And I want to model, you know, people want to model their success on other people that they aspire to be. And, And I think we're at that change where, you know, I think it's why there's this fascination around female entrepreneurs, because for a long time, I think there's been a lack of it in the market.
1: Yeah, it's definitely an exciting time. And I think, you know, to your point at the beginning, when you said, you know, you've got to kind of just get on with it. I think there's a lot of people who will, um, you know, talk themselves out of a lot of things. But also, you know, these these marketing platforms like Instagram, etc, really are Um, The catalyst for a lot of bedroom businesses or kitchen table businesses. Mm -hmm. Because for the first time, you can literally launch a business in a week uh, by having a platform through which you can showcase your product. Whereas, you know, traditionally and historically, you you weren't able to do that. There were a lot more slow channels that you had to Mm -hmm. go through. So I guess, you know, ambitious, Business owners have created tools and platforms for people to be able to. I mean, I guess her, in many ways, is one of those, right? Like people are being able to make money off their wardrobe, and if the goal is to empower people to have financial freedom, you know, you're essentially enabling people to make money from old rope for one of a for one of a better phrase.
2: Yeah, exactly. And when I think back to the early days of her in terms of launching a brand overnight, you know, I'm, I'm super decisive. I make decisions so quickly. Everyone's slightly horrified probably at how quickly I, I make a decision. Um, and, and when I think back to the early days of her, we had built an Instagram following, uh, you know, on a wait list. We're launching this soon. Be part of it. And, you know, for a couple of months of of nothing more than an Instagram feed and trying to create some hype around like statistics about fashion or like what rental fashion is or what we were what we were trying to do. We built a waiting list of, I think, you know, 10,000 plus people whilst we were scurrying around, trying to get our tech ready, trying to get everything else ready. So by the time we actually launched, we had a pre, you know, a, an amazing list of you know, tens of thousands of people signed up ready to go. And when I look back, it was one of the smartest decisions that we made. And I knew nothing about marketing and certainly not a marketeer by any stretch of the imagination. But, but I think it just goes to show, like you say, you can launch something overnight. You can start creating hype. You can start seeing like, you know, at, by the time that we had a waiting list of 10,000 people, I was like, okay, maybe I am onto something, and I'm not completely mad. I haven't just got a crazy idea. Like ten thousand people have given me their email address because they think this this, this is, could be cool. Um, and, and I think that that was a super you know great lesson that probably stumbled on uh, by more of an accident than anything else. That when I look back, I think was smart to do.
1: I'm very excited to watch what happens this year and next. I think you guys are in. Um, An extraordinary position, your positivity um, in spite of what has likely been a very, very difficult year is very inspiring. And I think there'll be a lot of people who will listen to this who uh, will find a lot of the practical advice really interesting and really detailed um I'm also really grateful that you have taken an hour out of your day your busy day well it's technically the end of the day but I'm sure you've got other things to be doing and the glamour of being sat in what does look like quite a glamorous um stock room, which I didn't want to say but in the absence of video I think it's important that people <laughs> recognise I'm also sat on my bed because I have an ant infestation and I've been waiting for someone to come and sort <laughs> out who hasn't arrived so um, the glamour is is uh, reaching dizzying heights but I'm really tremendously grateful for your time I think it's um, a really fascinating story and I can't wait to continue to watch you dominate the market and, um, and, and lead so uh,
2: exciting stuff ahead and thank you so much for you Emily anything and thank you for having me